Well, thank you, Pastor Neil, for allowing me to come and share with the church today. I'm the Middle East Regional Director for World Help, and for me, every day is a day of prayer for the persecuted church, because I live it on a regular basis with our partners traveling in the Middle East, seeing what they've gone through, seeing what they've faced, and situations that we can't imagine ourselves. But why such an emphasis on the persecuted church? Just to share a couple um, statistics with you. Open Doors is a ministry that tracks what's going on in nations around the world with the persecuted church, and they rank the, the top 50 worst nations for the persecuted church, with right now North Korea being the worst nation in the world to live as a Christian. They've made the statement that there's a shocking increase in the persecution of Christians globally. Approximately 245 million Christians living in the top 50 most restrictive countries suffer high levels of persecution or worse. The International Society for Human Rights, 80% of all religious persecution in the world is targeted at Christians. Christians are the most persecuted people, but their suffering is mostly unreported. The Pew Research Center, in 2016, Christians were targeted in 144 different countries. Cambridge University, talking about global persecution, an urgent human rights issue that remains underreported. The Washington Post, persecution of Christians continue, but it rarely gets much attention in the Western media. Even many churchmen in the West turn a blind eye. The former Archbishop of Canterbury said that Western gov governments have become strangely and yeah, inexplicably <laughs> reluctant to confront persecution of Christians, particularly in the Middle East. As I said, I travel in the Middle East. I've been traveling in the Middle East since 2008. I'm traveling primarily in Iraq and Jordan now, but I've also gone to Turkey and to um, Egypt. I'm frequently on the Syrian border, seeing what's going on there. At the time of the first Gulf War, there were roughly 1.4 to 1.5 million Christians of all denominations in Iraq. As of today, there's about 250 to 350,000 left. That's it. They've also made the statement, according to the UN, in some regions, the level and nature of persecution is arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide. And the main fact of such genocidal acts against Christians is exodus. Christians now face the possibility of being wiped out in parts of the Middle East where its roots go back furthest. Many of the churches in the Middle East trace their roots back to the scattering of the church from Jerusalem. Damascus, Syria, where did the many of the believers go after they left Jerusalem? They went into that region. Where was Paul converted? Damascus. So they trace their history back to that part, that time um, in the world. Now, when ISIS came on the scene, that was a very tragic time. Of course, we've seen the thing just in the last week or so where the leader of ISIS has been killed. We, we tend to see that as good news, but there's a mixture of news in there because right away they appointed a new one and said, now we're going to increase our terror attacks. And we don't see it here in the West. We don't see the news that I follow Western, Eastern, Middle Eastern news sources. Every week, ISIS has been doing something in Syria or Iraq, and it just never gets reported here. At the peak of ISIS, when ISIS came on the scene, they were, we call them extremists, but if you actually know anything about Islam, ISIS was closer to traditional Islam than most Muslims are. Most Muslims really are like most Christians. We're content to come to church, we're content to come and 
be involved with one or content one another to fellowship, but to really be serious in our faith, that's not the average Christian. The average Christian is someone that's just content to go along with their life and live Christianity as kind of a second stage in their life. And that's the, the average Muslim. So ISIS wasn't extremist. They were more dedicated to what Islam actually stood for. And under Islam, all of us who are Christians would be considered infidels. But under Islam, you have four rules concerning infidels. You have to give the infidel first a chance to reject Christianity and become a believer. If they don't reject Christianity and become a believer, then you have to pay the jizya. It's a tax on Christians. And ISIS made the tax so high that most Christians couldn't even afford to pay it. The third thing, if you won't accept Islam, if you won't pay the tax, you have to leave the area. And you have to leave the area immediately. What that meant for many Christians, and I've encountered so many of these in refugee camps across the Middle East. ISIS, I want you, as I tell some stories, I want you to try and imagine putting yourself in this situation here in the United States. Yes, we're starting to face persecution here, but it's verbal persecution. We have individuals like um, Pete, I can't remember to pronounce the last name, right? The one who just withdrew from presidential um, candidacy. He made a statement a couple weeks ago that one of his primary goals as president would be to remove the tax exempt status from all churches and remove that completely. Keith Oberman, I'm not sure what network he's with, but after one of the mass shootings a couple months ago, in anger, he got on camera and said, you Christians need to stop praying. <laughs> it's not working. You need to be doing something instead and just quit this praying because it's ridiculous. I'm hearing over and over again in our culture right now that it's time for the church to catch up with culture. Isn't that backwards? Aren't we as Christians supposed to be salt and light in culture so that culture can catch up with Christianity, not the other way around? So we are facing that um, with persecution but not to the stage that Christians in the Middle East have faced. When ISIS came in, they would often, most Christians tried to flee ahead of time. They figured this is going to be bad, let's leave. But some said, let's stay, let's see what happens here. Then all of a sudden one day, some black-clad fighters show up at your door with AK-47s. And they say, you're going to have to reject Christianity. They say, no, we, we can't do that, we can't reject Christianity. Okay, start paying the tax. We can't afford to pay that, okay? If you won't do that, you need to leave. And you need to leave right now. They say, okay, well, let us get a, let's pack up a few things so we can leave. No, you leave right now. Well, let me get my car keys. No, your car belongs to us now. You start walking. And if you're not out of the city limits by X time, we're going to kill you. But ISIS took it to an extreme. They often went from the saying either accept Islam or die. Now imagine yourself as they come in and they tell you, if you don't, they point the AK-47 at your head and say, if you don't reject Christianity and become a Muslim, we're going to kill you. What would you do at that moment? I'd like to think if I ever faced that moment, I'd be willing to say, Christ has done so much for me, Go ahead, pull the trigger, I'll be with Christ. But until that gun is pointed at my head, I won't know. But now take the next thing that they did. They didn't point the gun at the parent. They pointed the gun at the child. And said, unless you reject Christianity, we're going to kill your five-year-old son. We're going to kill your five-year-old daughter. And they knew that that would happen. 
And I've encountered Christians in the Middle East that rejected Christianity at that point and said, yes, we'll become Muslim. Not because they meant it, but to save their child. What would you have done in that situation? Knowing that that soldier, that fighter, would kill your child if you didn't reject your faith. Then as soon as those fighters left, they immediately escaped, got away as quickly as they could. And I've met so many that are guilt-ridden because of that. They say, we rejected Christ. And I've talked with them and counseled them and said, did you really reject Christ? Well, well no, we had to do something to escape. I said, I probably would have done the same thing. I said, do you still love God? Do you still love Christ? Yes. And I've counseled with them and prayed with them in those situations. I've had the privilege over the years to travel in many areas of the world that has persecution. I've actually had the opportunity to be in North Korea, a very surreal situation when I was there for a couple of days. In China frequently, I've been in India. Um, in China right now, it's gotten very, very tough to be a believer. In just the last year, over 2,000 churches have been raided. Crosses torn off the church. One church in the middle of service, soldiers showed up with bulldozers, took everybody out of the service, and leveled the building. In India, mobs of Hindu nationalists will show up at a service just like this, surround the church building. They've set churches on fire with people inside. They've dragged people out and beaten them. And you wonder, how can all this be happening? How can Christians face this? How can they come into this situation and still maintain their faith in the midst of that first kind of persecution? As I travel, especially in Iraq and Jordan, one of the things I see everywhere I go are sheep herds everywhere, crisscrossing the hills um, out there. And just as a little side note, with every herd of sheep, what do you think is usually with every herd of sheep? A shepherd. And I've often thought being a shepherd has to be the most boring job in the entire world. What do you do as a shepherd? <laughs> you watch sheep. I can imagine a shepherd coming home and saying, his wife saying, oh, what'd you do today? Oh, I was out watching sheep over on the north field. Oh, oh, okay, what'd they do? They ate. Oh, okay. Well, what'd you do in the afternoon? Oh, <laughs> in the afternoon, I took the sheep to another field. Oh, what'd they do there? Oh, yeah, they ate. You know, <laughs> that's all a shepherd does all day long, but a shepherd is crucial to the sheep. And one of the, when I'm, opportunity to be in homes and opportunity to speak in the Middle East, I often share Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But that first part of that passage, when you hear that, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I think of myself, I'm sitting there talking with people that have left everything. Family members have been killed because of their faith. They're living in a refugee camp or in a place where they don't want to be. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But there's a key verse in Psalm. I'm going to jump to that one. It's Psalm 23, 4. Even though I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for your rod and your staff are with me. Now, shepherds immediately understand that. In the Middle East culture, even today, they still understand that concept of going through the valley of the shadow of death. We tend to use that with funerals, that we attach that to a funeral that persons going through the valley of shadow of death are going to be in heaven now with the banquet with Jesus. But that's not what the psalm is talking about. The psalm is talking about when the shepherd is leading the sheep from one location to the next. <clears throat> it's often going through valleys or wadis to get there. With the shadows coming across the valley, 
And sheep are very, very fearful animals. They can get spooked by just about anything. That's why the shepherd is there. And the shepherd takes them through that valley. The sheep are scared of the shadows. It's the place where the mountain lions might be. It's the place where the bear might be. And the shepherd takes them through and says, the rod and the staff to comfort them. Now, historically, it's actually two. It's not, you've seen pictures with maybe Jesus with the sheep in one arm and the staff with the big curve in it. That was not really true. It was more likely two different, I mean, one implement, not two different implements. So when it says a rod and a staff, it's one stick. One end was heavier. So if a lion or a bear came along, they could beat off that lion or bear. The other one's a little lighter, and they could tap sheep to guide them along. So what the passage is saying is, as you're going through this dangerous situation, God is there to protect, God is there to guide. But what is it not saying? It's not saying that the shepherd leads them around danger, that they miss the danger situation. The psalm says, as I'm going through the worst situation as a sheep possible, God is there to protect and guide. So what's the application to us? I love the psalm today that I will not be shaken, as he read that psalm, that in the midst of these worst situations in life, the worst situation in life that you might be facing, God could have taken you around that situation. He could have removed the situation from you. That's not how life works. We go through the situations, whether it's cancer, whether it's loss of a job, where, whether it's marital issues, where something that comes up, we go through the midst of that danger. But with the promise that God says, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. In the midst of that danger, I'm there to protect you as necessary. I'm there to guide you. No matter what happens, I'm there with you. And so I share that with refugees in the Middle East to let them know that God is with them. And it's very trying at times. In one refugee camp, I was going from tent to tent, praying with the different people there. It was a Christian refugee camp. And came on this one lady. She was probably in her late 40s, maybe early 50s. And I asked her for what her prayer request would be. This was about two years into ISIS, having been there. She'd been living in this camp for two years. And she said, I have not heard of my, from my husband ever since ISIS came in. They took him away, and I haven't heard from my husband. Would you pray for this situation? Well, right away, I knew what had happened to her husband. Her husband was dead. I had no question in my mind that ISIS killed her husband. What do you do in the prayer time? How do you encourage a person that has lost her husband? She probably knew in her heart that she'd lost him, but she's still praying, still holding out hope. So I put my arm around her and just prayed for God's arms to be put around her, to comfort her, that with her husband being there with Jesus, that she could still feel the love of God in her life. She broke down crying, I broke down crying, but she hugged me and said, thank you for praying for me. Thank you for encouraging me. To illustrate situations in the Middle East. I'm going to tell a couple stories. Each one getting a little bit more dramatic as we go along here. But these are people that I've met in the Middle East, and their stories touched me in unique ways. The first one is George and Georgina. Interesting that they both have the same name. Um, but George was a Christian. Um, Georgina had been a Muslim. And so when we'll find out how she became a believer. She changed her name to Georgina. St. George was um, in this country is a popular saint. It's the saint of persecuted people. <laughs> and so she changed her name to be with him. But Georgina was from a very devout Muslim family. 
the irony is that, and I've counted this many times, that while the Muslims will call the Christians infidels, they will also see Christians as being more trustworthy, being more honest, being more dependable. So George was a Christian taxi driver. And they would have George pick up Georgina every day, every weekday, and take her to work. Because they trusted him. They felt that Georgina would be safe with George. One day as he dropped her off, he was looking in the rearview mirror, and he saw that Georgina got into another taxi. And George immediately became concerned because he thought, if something happens to Georgina, the family's probably going to be upset with me because I was the one that was responsible for getting to where she was going. So he decided to follow that other taxi and was very surprised when the taxi stopped at a church. And Georgina got out and went into the church. So he stopped, he went into the church to follow her in, and she was there in the church praying out loud, and he was shocked by her prayer because her prayer was a prayer of a true believer. And she was there crying, and he came up to her to talk to her, and right away she got frightened because she was so concerned that George was going to tell her parents that she was now a Christian. And being from a traditional, devout Muslim family, that could be a very severe situation. But he said, no, no, don't fear, but tell me, how did you become a believer? He said, well, I've been listening to Christian radio from outside the country, and as I listened to that day after day, I finally called into the radio station, and someone there led me to Christ. He said, but you know, I try to get here every once in a while. I don't have a Bible. So George gave, him, gave her his Bible took her back home. Well, a week later, her parents found the Bible. And she, they made her confess where the Bible came from. So they called George for a taxi ride, took George out to a remote place where other family members were, dragged him out of the taxi, beat him and stabbed him 22 times, and left him for dead alongside of the road. Someone else came along, like the Good Samaritan, picked him up, took him to the hospital where he was able to recover from that. But after he recovered, the family is still angry with George for all of this, that they were blaming him for Georgina coming to Christ. And so, <coughs> excuse me, so they arranged for him to be arrested. They knew the local chief of police. He's arrested. And even though a lawyer stepped in to try and help, they kept coming up with excuses. And for over a year, never in a trial, never in a situation where he could defend himself, he's in jail. But then he is transferred from one jail to another jail. And the person, the person that was in charge of that jail didn't know the situation, so they just let him go. They released him. Well, shortly after that, he and Georgina were able to sneak off to a church because she wanted to get baptized. And they convinced the pastor of this church to baptize Georgina. As they're there in the counseling session before the baptism, um, Georgina goes out to get ready for baptism. The pastor pulls George aside and said, George, you need to marry that woman. Um, he said, I think God wants you to marry that woman. Isn't that a nice, easy way to you know, go through your engagement, skip the dating, you know, just go straight to you know, your pastor saying, yeah, you two should get married. So she got baptized, and they actually, within the week, secretly got married. But the family did find out about the marriage. One day they showed up at Georgina's house, at George and Georgina's house, when George wasn't there, and kidnapped Georgina and their young son. She was pregnant at the time. Took her to their home. George immediately found out about it, followed them to the home, went in, was able to pull her out of the home, but a huge fight ensued with the family, the father, the mother, some other family members. They started beating, beating on George. They'd gotten into the car trying to get away, but people were blocking the car and wouldn't let them get away. 
They opened the door on Georgina, tried to drag her out, breaking her arm in the process. Finally, some neighbors saw the situation and came running over, not knowing what was going on, because if they knew this was a Christian situation of what the whole story was, they would have just stepped back and not done anything. And George and Georgina were able to escape. But as a result of the trauma, the beating, Georgina had a miscarriage and lost a child. They immediately knew their life was no longer safe. They fled to Turkey, to Greece, and finally ended up in Germany, where I met them. That was three years ago. They, for two years, they tried to enter into the UN refugee system, but they were rejected because the UN representative that interviewed them was a Muslim. And she could not believe their story, that Georgina had become a Christian. What Muslim would become a Christian? But they finally entered into the UN system, hoping to be able to immigrate to someplace where they can feel safe. Imagine being in a situation like that. Imagine having to face your very own father who wants to kill you because you became a Christian. Who willingly beats up your husband, wanting to kill him, blaming him that you became a Christian. My very best friend in the Middle East, we've become so close together. Met him first time in 2004, 2005. At the time, he was pastoring um, the largest church in Iraq. Between 2003 and 2010, the church grew from a small number of 40 to 50. By 2010, they were averaging over 1,000 people every Sunday in Baghdad. Most of these Muslim background believers that had come to Christ through his ministry. He had planted churches in a couple other places in Iraq. He distributed over 200,000 Bibles in Iraq, mostly to Muslims. He would actually, during the holy times for Shiite Muslims in Najaf and Karbala, he would go there specifically to give Bibles to Iranians who came in from Iran for these holy times. Well, you can imagine that he became noticed in the country. He became noticed by extremists and by terrorists. He started getting threats against his life almost on a daily basis. It got so bad that he and his wife would never go anywhere together. They would always take separate cars, whether it was to church or anywhere, with the idea if a bombing took place, if they got attacked, only one of them would get killed, and the other one would be there to take care of the children. It got so bad that the wife had a nervous breakdown. She didn't want to go to the store. She didn't want to go out and do anything because she was afraid of being killed. Their 14-year-old son had to be sent to Jordan to school because he was getting daily threats at school. Came to 2010, November of 2010, and the situation had gotten so bad. They were just afraid to do anything. They were trying to think, what do we do in this situation? Vernon Brewer, our president of World Health, called me on a Tuesday evening, around 9 o'clock at night, and said, have you heard from Hassan lately? I said, well, about two weeks ago, it was the last time I talked with him. I said, how's he doing? Well, he's, he's really discouraged right now. Um, he's afraid for his life, for his family's life. He just doesn't know what to do right now. And Vernon said, well, I really feel impressed to call him right now. Well, that was 3 o'clock in the morning in Baghdad. So I said, give me the number. So I gave him the number. About 20 minutes later, he calls back and tells me what had been going on. Earlier that night, he was, in the evening, he was out in their courtyard. It's an enclosed courtyard, but you could see out, out over it. 
And as he's there with his son at a birthday celebration for his younger son, about nine years old at the time, all of a sudden his son pushed him out of the way because his son saw the red dot of a laser sight on his dad's chest and pushed him out of the way. So they went inside fearful of that. Later that night, early morning, around 1 o'clock in the morning, the terrorists came, but they didn't know exactly where he lived, the ones that came. But his next-door neighbor had the very same name that he did. The terrorists came in, dragged this person out, killed him in the street, put him in a box, and burned the box in front of the house. Hassan calls the police immediately, because he had a friend on the police, but the police come there. When Vernon called, the police were still there. Hassan tells him the story of the situation, and Vernon calls me back and tells me the story, and said, do whatever you have to do, but get them out of Iraq. They need to be out of Iraq as soon as possible. As I said, that was a Tuesday evening. Saturday morning, I flew to Turkey to meet them. We'd gotten them out of Iraq, gotten them to Turkey, and I went there and spent a week getting a housing for them, helping them get settled in, paying for some stuff for them, and just trying to encourage them. They were able to leave with 13 suitcases, and ladies, you will appreciate this, she was a serious cook, and she couldn't leave her pots and pans behind. So two of the suitcases were just her kitchen, <laughs> kitchenware that she had to bring with her. I made frequent trips in that first year to be with them to encourage them, and on one of those trips, I could tell he was just discouraged, depressed, living in Turkey now, having had to leave a large church with an active ministry, wondering, what am I going to do now? I'm a refugee. I can never go back to Iraq again. He was a marked person in Iraq, couldn't go back. So I said, son, let's go for a, let's go for a walk. He lived about three miles out of the middle of the center of the city where he was living at the time, and we walked all the way into the city talking. Mostly I was just listening to him as he shared his heart and his concerns about, my life is over, my ministry is over. What are we going to do? I'm so discouraged. We ended up at a restaurant. Well, it wasn't very busy. Stopped there for some coffee. Sat off to the side in the corner. And he was doing something un very uncharacteristic for an Arab male. He was in tears in public. And that's just not heard of among Arab males in particular, the masculinity aspect of it. And I just reached over. He was sitting there with his hands, hands together, his head down. I reached over and put my hands on his and said, Hassan? Let me ask you something. Do you still love God? Oh, yes, yes, I love God very much. Does God still love you? Yeah, yes, he does. Has God left you because of your situation here? Oh, no. I pray every day. I read my Bible. You know, I, I have a relationship with God yet. Let me ask this, Kassan. Since God hasn't left you, you're still alive. You're in a different place. Don't you think maybe God has something else for you? That he's not finished with you? He said, yeah, but what about my church? Hassan, look at it this way. He was, he'd been a drama major in university. I said, look at it this way. That scene is closed. The curtain has come down. The scene's over. It's on to the next scene. What's that next scene going to be for you? And he looked up in surprise and said, I don't know. I said, well, God has uniquely blessed you this on. You have ability to preach the gospel. You have ability for discipleship and leadership. God has something for you. We just need to find out what it is. And then he really broke down crying. 
It's just a, an emotional breakage point for him, which he needed to have, of realizing that God is still with me. On the walk back home, the three miles back home, his step was lighter. He was talking about some possibilities. Maybe I can start a church here. Maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do that. Within a month's time, he started an Arabic language church for refugees in the city. Started a leadership training program there, a discipleship program for young refugees, Christian refugees coming out of Iraq. He has since emigrated to Australia. As soon as he got to Australia, what was one of the first things he did? Started a church among the refugee community in the city he's living in, Australia. Continuing discipleship through online, through social media. And he is fulfilled now because he realized, yes, in the midst of the worst situation I could ever imagine, where someone tried to kill me because I'm a Christian, God has something else for me. God could continue that ministry. And there's an amazing story of an impacted life through his ministry. As I mentioned, he had a leadership program in this city. And the young men in that program would go out into the streets of the city and they would look for other Iraqi refugees. It was obvious that, that they were Iraqi, not Turkish. And they would look for ones that were depressed, discouraged, who had needs because they weren't officially in the UN system and couldn't get the stipend from the UN. They were hungry, they had needs. And one of the leaders met a young man on the street, um, name of Ahmed. I've changed his name, the other names are real, but I've changed Ahmed's and you'll see why I've changed his name. Talked to him for a little while and just didn't say, tell him he was a Christian, just talked to him as Iraqi to Iraqi. He said, why don't you come over to our house, our home tonight for dinner? And the young man was just excited about that, that he'd been going a couple of weeks with hardly getting any food. He said, oh yeah, I'd love to come over there. So he came, had dinner with them. It was obvious when he came into their apartment that they were Christians. They had verses on scripture on the wall. They had a cross there. Before dinner, they prayed. But they didn't share with him anything else. This was just a time of talking about the situation in Iraq, praying, not, not even praying with him, just talking with him. He went away. They invited him back again and again. After about the fifth or sixth visit to the home, he started feeling guilty. He started feeling that I need to tell these people who I am. At 14 years of age, Ahmed was from a very devout Muslim family in Iraq. His, Iraq. his father encouraged him to become an imam, the equivalent of a pastor. And Ahmed moved into the local mosque where he started seriously studying to become an imam. Around the time he was 18 or 19 years old, ISIS came on the scene. And he immediately identified with the entire philosophy and thoughts of ISIS and said, that's who I need to be with. And he immediately joined ISIS as an ISIS fighter. The next year or so, he fought with them. He was part of the atrocities that were taking place against Christians, against other Muslims, as ISIS was expanding across the area. His main job as an ISIS fighter, after an atrocity, after dozens to a hundred, maybe hundreds of people were killed, his job was to come through and put one last bullet into everybody's head. Well, after doing this for months at a time, all those faces of the people he shot started to haunt his dreams every night. He couldn't sleep. He got to the point where I can't do this again, but if I don't do it, I'm going to get killed. So he fled to Turkey. And in God's sovereignty, ended up in the same town 
where the leadership training program was. And that's when his Christian leader met Ahmed, brought him to the house. Now Ahmed is sitting there thinking, these are Christians. <laughs> How many Christians have I killed in Iraq? And so he says, listen, I've got to tell you who I am. I'm an ISIS fighter. Yeah, I, I did flee here, but you know, I'm an ISIS fighter. He assumed that as soon as he told that story, he was out. They were going to kick him out of the house in anger. And they said, oh, okay. We understand. Here, have seconds. <laughs> yep. And he was just shocked. He said, why are you treating me like this? I just told you I'm an ISIS fighter. I was killing you Christians. Why are you so willing to just keep me in your home and have me eating here your, this meal with you? The opportunity that they were looking for to say, let me tell you why. It's because we love you. And the reason we love you is because God, through Jesus Christ, loved us. Now, he didn't become a believer that night, but within a month, he became a believer. Joined the leadership training program. In 2015, he fled to um, Germany with the mass exodus there because ISIS knew where he was and put out a hit on him that they wanted him dead. After spending a year in Germany where he continued his leadership program, started a Bible study group in a refugee camp, he decided, I'd love to go home. I'm missing home. Uh, it was a big mistake. <laughs> he went back to home, and immediately his father tried to kill him, tried to get his uncles into it to try and kill him. So he had to now flee to Jordan, where again he got involved in the leadership training program. He's now in Egypt, and his goal is to become a pastor. And that all goes full circle back to the persecution. <laughs> that in the midst of persecution, an ISIS fighter has become a believer. And he's going to have a powerful testimony. Imagine as he talks to other Muslims and say, hey, I was like Apostle Paul. I was out after Christians. But God miraculously reached in and touched my life. The story of persecution, I could have told it in an interesting way and just talked about a persecuted church being beaten, um, people trying to kill them. And then I could have pushed it back and said, when did this happen? This happened in the book of Acts. What was the result of the persecution in the book of Acts? The result of that is you and me. We've become believers because of that persecution back in the early church that scattered the church. And now Arabic Christians, Iranian Christians are being scattered. But in the process, they're sharing the gospel. In Iran, we're actively involved with Bibles for Iran through a partner there. The church in Iran is the fastest growing in the world. Young Iranians in particular are disillusioned with Islam and want to hear about Christ. I have with me today, there are resources. And there are resources that they have for evangelism are the simplest resources imaginable. The Bible. We can't print enough Bibles for our partner in Iran. They printed 350,000 earlier this year. They're printing 200,000 right now. We're involved with them in this printing process to get them out. Christians are, Christianity is growing so fast, most Christians don't have a Bible. So they have Bibles for them. They have the New Testament, and they have the incomplete Bible. The complete Bible they give to Christians primarily. The New Testament they give to non-believers, to Iranian Muslims. And they're willing, as Nathan was, 
to just go out in the street. And on that day, he had distributed 700 Bibles in the city where he lived. Strike up a conversation. Give someone the Bible. And we're hearing that the Bible alone is bringing people to Christ. Not because of witness, not because of anything else. One individual, another one starting to be not just an imam, but starting to be an ayatollah, went into the Muslim library. And someone from this, our partner ministry, put one of these Bibles on the shelf in the Islamic library. He saw it, it attracted his eye, he picked it up, he started reading it. He got so intrigued by what he was reading that for five hours straight, he didn't stop reading. Took the Bible away with him, kept reading it. Finally made contact with a Christian and became a believer. Someone who was going to be an Ayatollah, the highest ranking religious leader in the country of Iran. He left Iran, and now he's in a leadership training program to become a pastor and to become a leader of others to train them in Christ. The gospel makes an impact. That's why we need to be praying for them. We need to be praying for them faithfully each day. Hebrews 13.3 Remember those in prison as if they were your fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. 1 Corinthians 12.26 If one member suffers, all suffer together. And Ephesians 6.18 Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Rural Help is involved very actively with humanitarian aid. Uh, we're sending into northern Iraq one to two containers of food and clothing a month, sending um, every couple months into Jordan with a container of food. We're in refugee camps. We have a medical center in um, a mobile medical training center, training clinic in northern Iraq. We have a fixed clinic in Jordan. We are involved in the lives of the people. Now, these aren't seeing just Christians. These are open to anybody who come to these clinics. We go into the refugee camps, whether it's Muslims or Christian, to give the aid, and that's something that we are actively involved with. But with the idea that you're giving the food in the name of Jesus. You're being his hands and feet, hoping for an open door to the gospel. Our partner in Iraq, through their radio program, so far this year, through their radio program, over 100 people have called in saying, we've accepted Christ as Savior because of your radio program. In Jordan, at the clinic there, seeing over 2,000 patients every month, with the majority of them being Syrian refugees. In 2018, 1,000 became believers because of that ministry through the medical clinic. In areas where doing any gospel ministry, we're having a Bible. In Iran, they catch you with the Bible, you're going to jail. Maybe just for a couple of days, but you're probably going to be beaten in jail. Nathan being caught having distributed 700. Beaten, kept in jail, beaten again, tortured. But what did he say at the end after being beaten and tortured? I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep giving out these Bibles because I found something in this Bible that is so good that I want every Iranian to find out what's in here. We need to pray for people like Nathan. Pray for the people like that lady that I met in the refugee camp. And even in the midst of all the distributions we do, even as I'm on my last trip there, I sat in a, we'd given out some food, and the father of one of the um, refugee families came to me and said, I'd love for you to have lunch with me. It was a Muslim family. 
I said, okay, yeah, I'd love to have lunch with you. So we went to his tent in a refugee camp. He fixed the food we just gave out, um, which was kind of unique. It was nice. That, yeah, I'd never actually tasted the food we gave out. There were special nutritious um, rice packs with chicken flavoring in and vegetables in there, and they usually mix it with some chicken. In years of giving out this food, I had never eaten it. <laughs> and I thought, I wonder what this stuff actually tastes like. Are we giving them stuff that, you know, they're getting home and going, yeah, at least it's food, you know. <laughs> we can be happy with it. I took the first bite, and I'm going, wow, this is really good. <laughs> and so sat on the floor of that tent with them. And at one point, I finally said, listen, you know, we're Christians. The reason we're here in this camp right now is because Christ loved us so much that we can't help but love you. Can I pray for you right now in the name of Christ? He said, oh, yes, please do. So we bowed our heads and we prayed. I don't know what the result of that is. I know our partner's back in there regularly. My hope is that that seed of the gospel resulted in that father becoming a believer and the entire family becoming a believer because of that. And yes, we are facing persecution here in the States now. And it's growing. But it's nothing compared to the 245 million people living in those 50 worst countries in the world. Because for them, it's not just an insult. It's not just a tweet that attacks. It's not a Facebook post. Not a politician standing up and saying something derogatory about it. Not a newscaster saying, stop praying. For them, they're facing the possibility of death just because they're a Christian. No other reason. They don't even have to be actively doing anything, but they can face death or persecution because of being a believer. And in the midst of all those aid distributions that I've been part of, the one request I get is, oh, you know, I could use some clothes for my kids. You know, I could use some money to pay for some medical needs. I could use this. Now, the one number one request I get, please pray for us. Tell others to pray for us. That's why on every trip I make to the Middle East, if I'm in a camp, I try and go through, spend as much time as I can just going tent to tent, praying for people. It's, it's humbling in many ways because they feel as a North American and Christian ministry coming there that my prayers for some reason are better than theirs. <laughs> and that's why they want me to pray. And I'm thinking, no, that's not it. I'm just praying because I love them. Not because my prayers are any better, but because my prayers are encouraging to them. It lifts them up. It shows them that people are not just meeting their physical needs, not just talking about it, but we're there doing it on their behalf. And so that's my encouragement to you today. Don't think of it as just today being the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. Think of every day as a day of, of prayer for the persecuted church. On my desk in my office, I have a little 5 by 7 um, picture there with the names of all of our partners on in the Middle East, about 40 names on there, people that I work with. And every morning, the first thing when I get in, that's right in front of me, right in front of my computer, right in front of my keyboard, I look at that. And what I do is, Lord, pop a name out to me. <laughs> you know, as I look down these 40 names, pop a name out to me. And I'll pray for that individual. Thinking that, okay, God's impressed on my heart. Let me pray for that person. Get into the habit of praying, Period. <laughs> Because you need that prayer. For when you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, you need that relationship with God. You need to be able to talk to him and have that developed relationship. Pray for one another here at the church. If someone comes and shares a need and you say, hey, I'll pray for you, don't make that just words that you shared at that moment. Pray for them. 
In fact, one of the things I encourage, and I got this from a professor when I was in college. I'm one of the earliest students at Liberty University, and we had a professor. If you went and asked him, would you pray for this need? He knew that he had a lot of students coming to him, and he realized that he might forget the prayer. So he would stop right then and say, let's pray. I would encourage you, you know, if God leads, and someone comes, would you pray for me? Say, okay, let's pray. And pray right there and right then. But really remember the persecuted church. Ones that don't have the freedom we have to come together like this. But who still love God to the point that says, say, I will do anything for my Savior. Because my Savior did everything for me. And I'm willing to pay the price so that others can have what I have. Let's take a moment and pray. I'm going to lead in prayer, but also just think yourself, how can I more effectively pray? How can I encourage others? How can I let others know I'm praying? What can I do to make a difference in the lives of persecuted Christians, in the lives of people that those Christians will have an opportunity to meet? And like our fellow believers in Iran, I'm sure today hundreds if not thousands of believers in Iran have been in the streets passing out scripture. At the time of the Iranian revolution in 1979 there were an estimated 550 believers from Muslim background. In just the last 40 years that has blossomed from 550 to over 800,000 in one of the most persecuted countries in the world for Christians. God is working. God is moving. And you can be part of it simply through your prayers. God, we love you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your daily encouragement for each of us as we face situations that are so personal to us. Maybe some here this morning, Lord, are going through their darkest moment. They don't know what to do. Maybe they're discouraged. Maybe they don't even want to admit that they're discouraged, Lord. Make your presence known to them. Wrap your arms around them and encourage them, letting them know that not only are you with them every day, but those around them are with them also to be there for them, to lift them up, to pray for them. As we think of persecuted believers around the world, Lord, I've been there. I've seen them. I've heard the stories of people that I've met who are with you now because of their faith. Thank you, Lord, for loving them so much that you are in the midst of them in the persecution. And now, Lord, they're with you in heaven. So we pray for them. We pray that in the midst of all this, your name goes forth, your name is glorified, and that your kingdom grows because of persecution. And Lord Paul actually said, I'm thankful for persecution. It makes us grow. It draws us closer to you. And that's what we want, Lord. We want to be closer to you. And as a community of believers here in Waldorf, here in Maryland, here in Northern Virginia, to the ends of the earth, Lord, is a community of believers 
who can encourage one another, pray for one another so that your name is glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.